If you would please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. If you uh, have been with us uh, last week and previously, we see that Paul, we're wrapping up the book of Romans. And we only have a couple more chapters. We'll take chapter 15 today. And the theme here in chapter 15, as we will see, uh, right from the very beginning, Romans chapter 15, verse 1, we see that we, we so Paul's included in this, this verse here, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. So we can see that Paul continues on the theme of Christian unity. Last week, we saw what happens when Christians are not in unity. They're a frame of mind that chooses to want to disunity or cause uh, splits and cause problems within and between brothers and sisters. Today, Paul continues and kind of brings a closure in how wonderful and how good it is for brothers and sisters to dwell in unity, Christian unity. And Paul says right here, and, he, and, he, and it's concerning the weak and the strong Christians to live in harmony or Christian unity as he looks at this and he says, those who are weak are thinking are the ones who think they're already strong. They think they've already re reached this, this religious plateau or this this. Christianity strength that they know everything and that they can do and live and, and, and everyone has to follow them. Whereas God is called to follow him and not them. And so as Paul looks at these, these individuals, he's saying, okay, we as strong, those who are under the grace and not under the legalism, under these laws, under these traditions, but under grace, we can be, we're strong and we're not to, to, to look at what these weak Christians are doing and and cast them aside, but to under, kind of come alongside and help them bring from immaturity to maturity, to help them in their walk because they need to understand what they're doing is wrong, but we need to do it in love and in gentleness because we want to keep the unity within the Christian uh, community. And the apostle placed himself in this company of strong. We are, we who are strong, their faith in Christ alone uh, is what uh, understood. He understood the ones who were considered strong understood that they didn't have to eat a certain way. They didn't have to only worship God on one specific day, that they could worship every day. They, could, they had the freedom to, to eat the food that God said is, we could freely eat. We didn't have to be under these religious uh, rules and regulations that the Jewish faith was following at the time. That their freedom was from these uh, ceremonial obligations, but they remained under the commandment of love. And that's what we needed to stay focused on. And that's what uh, Paul is saying is we had to stay focused on the love and not the nuances, the interest, interesting things that people bring up. And if you consider yourself strong in comparison with your brother or your sister, use your strength to serve those uh, brothers and sisters in Christ instead of using your strength just to please yourself, he says. So many times when you're strong and you know that you're just living under grace and things are going well, sometimes you use that for your own advantage and, and, and not really look at how you could use that for the help others along in their own walk and their own faith. 
And it wasn't not enough for the strong simply to put up with the idiosyncrasies of the weaker Christians. They were to bear the weaknesses of the immature for Christian unity. So being patient with our brothers and sisters uh, as we uh, dwell together in unity, as we fellowship in unity, as we serve alongside in unity, where as we saw last week, we are not to have a critical spirit and look for always the wrong, looking, constantly picking out and looking for fault. That is not what we're to do. We're to help and encourage those in the faith to continue to grow in their knowledge and understanding of God. And he says in verse 2, let us, let each of us uh, please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So rather than pleasing yourself, themselves, strong believers are to please their neighbors, be focused on others, others-focused, not self-focused. What can I get out of this? No, it's not what you can get out of this. What, what can you help and help others get out of this? And the goal is to help them develop into a more Christian a mature Christian. Even Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. You see how important it is that we have to die of self to live and to be able to serve others. So many times we get ourselves um, in the middle of or become something that we are not to be. We are to just constantly guide and love and encourage people to know God in a deeper level and to encourage them in the word of God and to follow God's ways, not their ways, not some religious ways or some church ways, but to follow God's way. And that will lead to a, a fruit. It will lead to an outcome that is good. It says right here in verse 2, leading to edification. All too often, Christians find it easier to tear each other down instead of building each other up. This is a regular strategy that Satan uses to those who are immature, those who are weak in the faith. They will be used by Satan to try to hold down and not encourage and allow the grace of God to work and patiently work in that person's life. But we are to resist the things, the strategies of Satan. We're to resist those temptations and to give grace. And Paul then says in verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the approaches of those who approach you fell on me. He says, it, it, I've taken the punishment. I've taken the reproach. I, it's all been on me. It's all about me. It's not about anybody else. The great example of self-denial for the sake of others, of course, is Jesus Christ. He was the great sacrifice. In Christ, the very Son of God did not order his life. He didn't order it. He didn't, he didn't have everything play out the way we see in the scriptures to please himself. He did it to please the Father. He did it to help and to please others, to encourage them in the faith. How much more if God, the Son of God, didn't order his life and control his life, how much more important that you and I do not control our life? That we want our life to be so ordered and we're going to have it all planned out. Our five-year plan, ten-year plan, it's going to go exactly the way I want it. Oh, how foolish we are when we think that way. 
the selfless life of, of Christ is reflected here in this, this verse 3 where he mentions at the end of part of verse 3 here, he quotes from Psalm 69.9. We also see that Christ did not live to please himself. This is clearly stated in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Is that our heart? Is that, is that what we are here to live now, waiting for the Lord to come back and take us home? Is that we can serve him and serve others? Or are we looking just to be served? Remember, we do not live to please ourselves. If we do, we will not follow the example of Christ who lived to please the Father and help others. That's what's important for us to learn. In verse 4, for whatever things were written before were written for, for our were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. God is so good to us. He's given the scriptures so that we can have hope, that we can learn to have, and, and he can help us through the scriptures to have patience and to have comfort by studying the scriptures. It's a great principle that you and I must hold on to very dearly. As a believer, everything that was written in the scripture was written for us today. It wasn't, some people today will say, oh, the Old Testament was for yesterday. It was from 2,000 years ago. It was for someone else. It was not for us today. That is not correct. The whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation is for you and for us, for me today as believers to learn so that we will have patience and have comfort. God can use it to minister to us through the scripture. Which means you must learn and to study and to learn and to hear the scripture. Just having a Bible in your, in your home does not go through the process of osmosis to comfort you. If you don't open the scriptures and read it and hear it, why I so, I'm so excited about having the radio station on? Because now the scripture is going out. It's going to be comforting people that have, are not being comforted right now. They're being encouraged where they may not have been encouraged. There are people out there in this society, in this community that has no hope. I can think of thousands of young men sitting in dorms that have no hope in many respects. Because no one is opening up the scriptures. They're not going to the churches. They're not going out. And we want to reach them so that they can understand that they can find hope in Jesus Christ. This community is ravaged by drugs and alcohol. We want them to hear there is hope in Jesus. And they will hear it because they hear the scriptures being taught. They will hear you because you've heard the scriptures. Repeat those scriptures to them when you come in contact with them in the grocery line. Or at a holiday Christmas party and you're sitting with a couple a newlywed couple, a young couple that needs to hear there is hope. And you share the scriptures with them. Because he says, Paul says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning. And it's that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
Scripture is relevant. Scripture is good. Because it speaks to our deepest needs. God's word can speak to your heart into the depths of you that no one else knows what you're feeling at that moment in time. But when you hear the scripture, it speaks to the deepest of needs you have. And it's true that endurance taught in the scripture and the encouragement it brings that we are enabled to live a life in hope. When you feel like nothing is working, nothing seems to be going your way, everything seems to be going against you, go to the scriptures and allow God to minister to the depths of your soul to give you hope to get through that day. Because his mercies are new every day. The difficulties of today are bearable because God in his word tells us of a better time yet to come. This is not our home. Heaven is our home. And he intervenes his comfort, encouragement by speaking through his word to the hearts of receptive believers. But you must be receptive. You must prepare. You must be willing to receive the truths of God. And to separate oneself from the scripture is to be turned to a deaf ear to the voice of a heavenly father eagerly wanting to console your Console you into the depths that no one else can. No one here can help you soothe your soul and console you, encourage you to the depths that the scriptures can do. Not if the most highly trained psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker can minister to your depths of your soul than the word of God. That's why we encourage you to study the word of God. Paul goes on in verse 5, says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and the and Father of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the importance of, Paul is emphasizing here in Christian unity. Paul's wish was and, and desire is that, that God would grant the church at Rome a spirit of unity. Because there was disunity happening in the, in the churches at that time. Nothing new under the sun. But it is this unity, this perspective, this desire that Paul had for his brothers and sisters. That he wanted to have this unity so, so dearly because it's so good, it's so right. And that perspective is, is to be focused on Jesus Christ as our model for Christian conduct. We should be thinking like Christ thinks. We should be taking on his values, his priorities in our life. And to be able to do that, we must study the scriptures and learn how he lived, how he taught, what he taught, how he thought, how he reacted. We are to adopt and take those on as our own character. That's what Christianity is, is to be Christ-like. Not worldly, but Christ-like. And because of that, and, be, and because that where that unity comes, because we're focused on Christ and being Christ-like, then the members of the church draws closer to Christ, then they will draw closer to each of the members of the body. That is the glue. That's what connects us. 
That's what brings the commonality. We're so diverse. We're so diverse in every aspect of our life that the only thing that brings us to commonality in many times is are the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That we have the same home. We're going to the same place. We're serving the same Savior. And so that we can overcome the diversity and the other differences that we come to the table with. And with that harmony, with that commonality, we're able, as the fruit of Christian unity, produce a symphony of praise to God in which each voice blends with all the others to the glory of God. We're a family. It's a family affair. We, as the adopted sons and daughters of God, sing praises to our Father. To our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that Paul puts these words together here in these verses in a form of prayer can really highlight to you and I and demonstrate that he recognizes that for this to happen, it has to be by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. As we sang, change us from the inside out, Lord. Because if you're looking for just an outward change, it will not bring about the unity. In, this, in, the, in the body. We need the Lord to do a change in our hearts. To bring about that unity. The power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, our God is a God of patience. We are often in so much a hurry. That God often seems to be working too slowly for you and I in certain things. We want it done. The microwave mentality today. <laughs> I I just asked, Lord, didn't you just give it to me now? And day after day after day, as we continue to lift up these prayers and requests and ask for God intervening in the situation, and it doesn't seem to be happening, we don't see anything going on, and things are just not going your way. It doesn't mean God, God's delay is a, is a no. It doesn't mean it's a Yes. Just means be patient. Wait upon him. He is in control. Allow him according to his will to work out the things that you're lifting up to him in earnest. God's delays are not his denials. And he has a loving purpose for every delay in our regards to how we are answering our prayers. His timing is perfect. His ways are perfect. Perfect. His will is perfect. If we would just be so flexible and bendable to be patient and wait for his timing and his purpose and his will to be accomplished in our life. Because our goal is to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we accomplish that goal by having one mind and one mouth being in unity of our thinking and speech as brothers and sisters. It's so important. And that's why he said in verse 7, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also has received us the, to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, to the Jews, for the truth of God, to, to confirm the promises made to the fathers. And to that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, 
For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you people. In verse 12, and again Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him the Gentiles shall hope. And in verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. All these verses that Paul brings here is really a, a closure to his whole letter, a, to his whole presentation of everything he's been talking about over the last 14 chapters. He's kind of winding it up here for us today. It highlights the overall theme of the letter. The inclusion of the Gentiles within the promises of his people. Both the weak and the strong are to accept one another. And it's meant that we are to follow Christ. We are to have that, that, that common focus, that focus on Christ. And we, he accepted us in the fact that we are accepted in accepting of one another. It should be very easy for us to reach out to the hand of another knowing that that person has been saved and is loved by the same Savior. There should not be a division. There shouldn't be someone coming against a brother and a sister when we have the commonality of the same Savior. There should not be that way. And because that we have the same Savior that we honor and worship, we should have that, that saying of any friend of his is a friend of mine. And this spirit of brotherly kindness will bring praise to God and will, who makes it all possible even in the first place. How great it was yesterday for the men's breakfast to be able to dwell together in unity and love and to just praise and to spend time together. What a sweet time it was with my brother. The love, the brotherly love with one another. Paul here, through these, these verses, quotes a series of passages from the Old Testament demonstrating that God intended that the Gentiles to praise him. Instead of driving or dividing over disputes, disputed matters, the Jews and Gentiles should unite in Jesus over the common ground of praise. There should not be division. Oh, you're from that community. I'm from this community. That should not happen. I'm from another country. I'm from this country. No, there should not be a, a, a division there. We're both our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, I'm from this. I, this is what I do for a living. That's what you do for a living. There should not be a division on that. God does not want to see you and I to develop into cliques and say, I only hang out with people who are like-minded over here. Your like-mindedness is not on your job. It is on the fact that we have the same Savior. I can't emphasize that enough. 
I have watched ministries in the past, especially very large ones, become divisional over the fact that of what they do for a living or the color of their skin or ethnic origin or male or female, older or younger, youth groups separated from the adults. That should not happen. And we have to take the responsibility for us to make sure we don't make, it, make that happen. We're accountable to God, our Savior. And we receive all who claim to love Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. With all the little flaws and challenges that we all, all have. Because we're all maturing in our faith and growing. So Paul is emphasizing here through this prayer and this blessing in verse 13. It's so appropriate because as God fills us with the blessings of his joy and peace in believing, we are equipped to live in this common bond of Christian unity God calls us to. And in verse 14, he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. He had not even been there, but he knew without a doubt that these were good, strong Christians. This is a body of believers that were strong. He even highlights here, morally, I know you're full of goodness. You don't have any hatred for another. You have goodness. You're, there's a, morally, you're solid. Intellectually, he says you're complete in knowledge. You're, you're not naive of the scriptures. You're not naive of what God says. Even functionally, they were complete to instruct one another. They were competent to be able to use the scriptures. The believers in Rome, they were able to expect to help each other and to receive one another toward and encourage one another to spiritual maturity. Paul knew this, and that's why he's encouraging them. He says, I know myself, I'm confident that you guys are like this. But he says in verse 15, nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Oh, Paul here at the end, he reminds us as the readers, he reminds them of the believers here in Rome. He says, now, I'm not being bashful here. I was really bold to you in these letters. The last 14 chapters has not been, oh, seeker-friendly kind of an added uh, feel to it, okay? So if you were a little bit offended, if you were a little bit pushed back on the things you were reading and hearing, that was the point. I didn't sugarcoat it for you guys. So yes, I was bold, but I am that passionate to know for you to know the truths of God. I'm not here to sugarcoat it for you. I'm boldly proclaiming the truths of God because I know from my own life, if I don't do that, you're not going to get it and you might make the same mistakes I've made. But it was his refreshing way of, of reminding them that he laid out very clearly the foundational essentials of the Christian faith 
please do not forget what you've just learned as you go forward in your Christian life. Please don't forget these things. Paul did not pretend to bring them theological insights that they've never heard before. He just made it very clear and concise and reminded them, and he repeated them over and over through the chapter after chapter so that they would not forget. Because he had a calling. We said it right here in the verses that he had a calling. God put on a calling to, to reach the Gentiles with this truth. And Paul doesn't just preach the gospel of salvation, but also instructed believers how to live before God. That can be very challenging for us. So many times we read this, especially Romans, and we just want, oh, give me the theological aspect of it. Just give me the, 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 the gospel of salvation, and, and, and I'll figure out the rest. No, no, no. God is going to give to you and I not only the gospel of salvation, but how you are to live as a Christian. He does, God doesn't leave that up. He just says, here's what you need to do. These are foundational. You must live this way. And Paul understood when the Gentiles understood this, that they would live to glorify God. And then they would, as they glorified and they worshiped God, that would be, as he said here in the scripture, acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It would be confirmed by God himself. And that's why he said in verse 17, Paul says, therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. In this verse, Paul, he's, he's basically saying, I have reason to be proud here. I have reason to be proud, not because of personal achievement. It's not because it's something I've done. It's that what God has done through my life to help you, to encourage you in your walk as a Christian. He even wrote that similar kind of passage in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. He says, sufficiency is from God. Everything, anything I produce, anything that's sufficient, anything that's fruitful is not from me. I'm so, so proud of the fact that God even would even be willing to use me in the lives of other people. But he was going to be faithful in what God had called him to do in his priestly duty that God called him to do, and that was to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul had served as Christ's instrument in leading the Gentiles to the obedience of God, and he was passionate about that, and he was not going to back away from that because someone thinks he's too bold and too preachy or too whatever. Because it didn't matter what other people thought. He was going to be faithful in what God called him to do in preaching the gospel. And laying that foundation for the people of the Gentiles to, so that it would bring them to the obedience to God. Verse 18, for I will not dare to speak of, of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. And mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and around about to Illyricum. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. See, Paul served as the ambassador of Christ, spreading the gospel of God by the power of the Spirit of God. 
And we see that it even resulted in signs and miracles as he went out and did that faithfully. People could clearly see that God was working through his life and touching the lives of people who were listening and hearing. Paul could attest all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum that he had fulfilled his task of preaching the gospel of Christ. He went from modern-day Yugoslavia, Albania, which is the uh, which is the the far far uh, west, and he was working his way back to Jerusalem. He had covered in his three missionaries uh, journeys. He was covering everything that God had led him to, and there was these remote places and these places that nowhere else had heard. The Gentiles had heard the gospel. And as the book of Acts reveals, Paul's strategy was to concentrate his missionary activity on the great urban centers of his day. And he had accomplished that goal very clearly. And he was now on his way back to the uh, western reaches of the empire. And he was bound and determined to be faithful what God has called him to do there. And that's why in verse 20, he so I have made it by, I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. So Paul's mission was to not go over to somewhere else and say, oh, Man, there's some excitement going on in that urban place. Let's go there because there's some momentum. I could kind of go along and touch uh, along with another guy's work and, and kind of benefit from that work that that guy's doing. No, no, no. If it's already being preached, it's already going on, I'm going to places where it's not the scripture's not being taught, where it's not being shared the gospel uh, clearly. That's where I'm going to go. And because he was going to these remote areas and places where no one else was going, it took time. It took time to, 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 uh, to, to plow and to plant seeds and to water and to harvest. I mean, these things take time. It doesn't happen overnight. He wasn't going in and saying, I want to start a church by going to all these other churches and try to get believers to come to his church so he can automatically have a church. No. I want to go reach the lost, those who are not saved. And that took time. Wasn't easy. And for this reason, verse 22, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. I've been out there working really hard here. I, so I, I want to come see you. But now I'm no longer having a place of these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. It's been 25 years for Paul. 25 years, and no longer is he's covered through his missionary journeys, he's covered of these areas where nowhere else was preaching the word of God and sharing and, and laying these foundations, these Gentiles. Now he says, I really want to come see you. Done a work. I've solidly planted from the gospel of Asian Minor in Greece, and he's eagerly now ready to press forward to Spain. But he's going to stop through Rome on the way where he would spend some time with the believers he wanted to. I'm going to make it there. 
I'm coming to Spain, but I have to go through Rome first. And I've got some other places. I thought, but I want to sit there and I want to see you soon, he says. His desire was that he would come along and he would see them and then they would then send him on his way with support both spiritually and materially. Oh, he got to Rome. He got to Rome three years after this letter was written. It took him three years after. Oh, I'm going to Rome, but then to Spain. But it took three years. Talk about patience. We say, oh, we're going to go to whatever state. And we start planning and got our you know, plane, our tickets already, and we're going to be there in a few hours. Oh, it's going to take forever, all day long to get there. Imagine three years since he wrote this, uh, this letter, this epistle, before he actually got to, to Rome. And even though Paul had great plans, oh, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do this, got this, I'm going to see these people, and I'm going to go to Rome in this way, and this how, as missionaries, and they're going to receive me, and they're going to kind of feed into me, and, and spiritually, and they're going to give me materially, oh, this is going to be great. Did it play out according to Paul's plans? No, he didn't go as a missionary. He went as a prisoner. God had another way, but did he go to Rome? He went to Rome. Even though he had great plans, and yes, God put on the desire of his heart for the fact that he would go to Rome, you, he thought he all had it laid out as a missionary, how he was going to play that out, but God had another way he was going to take him to Rome. And it wasn't going to be easy. He went to Rome as a prisoner awaiting trial before Caesar where he would preach the gospel on a different kind of mission field. See, Paul was thinking too small. Paul, God put on a desire to go to Rome, but he was just going to go as a missionary to, to spend some time with his brothers and sisters. This is going to be great. It's going to be fun. It'll be like old times kind of a feel. But God says, no, 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 I, I've got great things. You've been faithful in the small things, faithful in doing what you've done. There's some I'm going to take to, to minister to kings and kings. And I'm going to take you to Rome, Paul. But it's not according to how you think it's going to happen. I'm actually going to bring you through some really serious trials and tribulation to make you go to Rome, Rome like the desire I put on your heart. But I'm going to have you not go there to have a great party with your brothers and sisters. I'm going to take you there so that you can minister to Caesar himself. Amazing what God will take you in places and people you were able to minister to if you will just allow him to do that work through you. Yes, God, you put a desire to go here. Now let him work out the details of how that's going to work out. Be flexible because it can be great. And even after his release, Paul's release as Roman imprisonment, we see at the, at the end of the book of Acts, there is, it's not real clear that he made it to Spain, but you can kind of read at the end of the book of Acts that there's reason to believe that Paul did in fact make it to Spain and preach the gospel there. God is faithful. In verse 25, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. 
ah, he had another stop before he gets to Rome, before he gets to Spain. He had another stop called Jerusalem. And he was going there for a very specific reason, and that is to minister to the saints. For it pleased those in Macedonia and Eucaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. See, right now, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, and you can see that in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. And there he would deliver this financial gift that came from the churches of Macedonia and Eucaia, and who had gathered this, all this, this, this financial support for the Jews, the Christian Jews, the Christian believers in Jerusalem. Why? Because those believers in the beginning, they had initially sold everything. And they had communities, these communions, to come together and support one another and give to one another. And then as things played out, as they had time went over, and then all of a sudden they were losing jobs, they were losing positions because they were kicked out of the temples, and they were all this stuff, they became very, very poor. But they had ministered to those who were sent out into the Gentile world. Those Gentile world received spiritual. They were being fed by those. And because they were fed spiritually, they were then to give financially. And they were so freely and so wonderfully wanting to, Paul, to take that financial back to those Christian believers in Jerusalem to help their brothers and sisters in need. Because they were ministered so much by the spiritual sending out to them with the gospel. Remember, God's love binds together all believers regardless of ethnic origin. And the contribution made by the Gentile church expressed their tangible form of bond of Christian unity by giving freely back to those in need. There was no barrier. The Gentiles were sitting there going, we're not helping the Jewish, those in Jerusalem, those Jewish believers. We're Gentiles. We'll keep it for the Gentiles. Believers. That's, that we're, our little group, our little camp, that's where we'll just keep it for them. They have to figure it out themselves. See, they didn't think that way because Christian unity doesn't think division. They think unity. Therefore, verse 28, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by the way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Paul knew, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I'm going to deliver the financials to help those in need. And when I'm done there, then I'm going to work my way to you. I'm coming. It's, it's, just give it time. It's going to happen. But when I do come, it's because the gospel of Christ, the fullness of the blessing that comes from that is going to be what propels me, empowers me to come. Because Paul had completed his responsibility, his mission. And once he knew his mission was complete, he knew that that gift was securely in the hands of the believers in Jerusalem. He would then start his way for Spain and come by Rome uh, on his way through that. And he was confident 
that his visit would be accomplished by the fullness measure of Christ's blessing. Because Christ was going to bless this. There's no question in his mind. And that's why in verse 30 he says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Paul was a very humble man. He knew God had blessed him and used him so mightily in in the lives of the Gentiles. The fact that he was even called by God to go reach the Gentiles was a miracle in its first because of his past. But then to take him and actually have so much fruit and so many people being saved and, and churches planted in so many areas that he still recognized how desperately he needed the prayers of his brothers and sisters. Even though Paul was so confident that Christ was going to bless him, after he gave that security, that funds, that money, to that gift to the believers at Jerusalem, he still knew that he had been shown, and we see that in Acts very clearly, that in Acts 20, verses 22 and 23, in Acts 20, uh, chapter 21, verses 10 through 14, the Holy Spirit kept showing him that this was not going to be easy going to Jerusalem. It was not going to be a cakewalk. This wasn't going to be some relaxed uh, vacation. That there were some serious things were going to happen. And he was asking his brothers and sisters for prayer because he knew regardless what God was having him do, and what, regardless of what he was going to continue to do, he knew that he needed the prayers of his brothers and sisters. He understood that he needed the fullness of God. If you look and read to verse 30 again, did you catch the Trinity in verse 30 here? It says, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God the Father for me. The Trinity laid right out there. He understood the power of God. And he understood that as he pleaded to his, begged to brothers and sisters, I need your prayers because I need people to intervene and help and support and lift me up during this, these times to come. Because there was a sense of uncertainty about what would happen to him when he returned to Jerusalem. But this reveals the true humility of the apostle here. The reality of the intense spiritual opposition that will come against a pastor, against those who are called by God to share the, the scriptures, to teach others, to start church. He understood the spiritual warfare that would come against you. That would come against him as he goes out there and does the things that God's called him to do. And he was requesting urgently that his friends in Christ join him in this struggle. This struggle, this, this prayer struggle. That doesn't mean you're wrestling with God. You're wrestling with the things that keep coming against you. And you're asking God to intervene and to support and to encourage through that. Chuck Smith wrote, he says, Ministers need the prayers of their flocks. With Paul, I urge you to strive in your prayers for your pastors. We need your prayers and we thank God for them. Pastors are sustained by the power of the Spirit through the support of their congregations. 
Oh, how much I need your faith. The spiritual warfare is rampant. And that's why Paul finishes here in verse 31 that I, I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. There was, a, there was Jewish, Jewish people there that did not accept Jesus Christ. They were still very fully flat out for the law and not on grace. Not willing to, to, to serve and to be surrendered to Jesus Christ. They wanted to continue in their traditions. So he wanted to be delivered from those who did not like uh, what he was preaching. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He even knew when he came to the saints to deliver the gift that it would be acceptable, that they would, they would receive what the Gentile believers were doing. There was no guarantee that they would accept what the Gentiles were giving freely as a gift. And then verse 32, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. See, Paul asked that the Roman Christians pray with him that it would be he would be protected from those in Judea who would reject the faith. He wanted the Roman Christians who were, with, who were oneness with Paul, one-mindedness. They were there willing to help and encourage him, not come against him in his calling of what God has called him to do. And that, that would provide the essential motive for them to support Paul in times of these troubling times he was about to face. Because he knew that those who were like-minded, those who were oneness with him and what God's called him to do, that he understood that this love was inspired by the Holy Spirit, not by the flesh. And having that awareness of a fellow believer's difficult situ situation will move a, the genuine Christian to join that person in prayer. As a believer, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, if you're being moved by the Holy Spirit, then you see a brother or sister in a time of need or a time of struggle and they need prayer. You, God is going to work in you to pray for that person. God's going to reveal that to you, and he's going to bring that person to memory as you're spending time, quiet time. And you are to then lift them up in prayer. Because that's the, the genuineness of love that God inspires in through, through you for another. He was also concerned that his mission in Jerusalem would be received. See, Paul's desire is that, that the will of God would be accomplished in everything he did. That he might come with joy to Rome. Not with, not with anxieties and, 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 and pressure on the chest. Oh my gosh, I think I'm going to be killed when I go to Jerusalem. He didn't want those anxieties and pressures. He wanted joy coming in. That they were together with other believers. It would be a time of a spiritual refreshment. Because when you have true fellowship with a brother... When you have true fellowship with a sister, you are absolutely encouraged spiritually. You're filled up. You're just so blessed. You're, so, you're not being drained from the, a person who's a non-believer. Yes, a non-believer will drain you. And you're to pour out and to try to lead them to Christ. God's going to refresh you. He will re re fill you back up the tank. But when you get together with a Christian believer who is like-minded, you should be refreshed in that time of fellowship. That's why God says, do not forsake the fellowship. 
because he understands how important that fellowship is. Times of fellowship such as this is an earnest call for earnest prayer. Because as his brother here, Paul, is coming in to do a work for him, to bring a gift, come together to, to fellowship, to be encouraged, and to encourage others, he understands that Satan's going, is, does not want that to happen. And Satan does not intend that that work or the fellowship of God's servants to be enjoyed or Christian unity to take place. He's going to try to divide that at every point. And if you think that Christian disunity or Satan is going to try to put wedges and divide people back then and not today, you're being fooled. Because what Satan's work was back then is still happens today. And Paul here concludes the letter. everything he wanted to get across to these believers. Now, next week in chapter 16, we'll see him close with personal greetings. And it's just as important. But here he kind of closes in verse 31 with a prayer or a closure of a prayer for the believers. He says, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Complete. I'm done. I've said everything I need to say to you. I've boldly said it. I haven't held nothing back. I just hope you embrace it and imply it to your life. Because it's complete. May the God, now the God of peace be with you all. Paul even wrote in Philippians 4, 7, that, that, that God's peace would be surpassed all understanding. That the peace and the joy that would fill you from Understanding and reading what he just wrote this letter that would it be beyond your own understanding of the joy and the peace that God would fill your life with. And that Christian unity would be so solid that we would just want to praise God for what he's done.